it has never been more inspiring and satisfying to me to be a doctor than it has been during this this period. And it's been such a challenging period for so many reasons, but going to the hospital, knowing how important the work that you're doing is to the people around you has been a really powerful experience. Welcome back to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet. Today we're going to speak with a doctor, Dr. Drew Puwar. He is a physician at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's a professor at the Weill Cornell School of Medicine, uh, and he's also a writer. He's a contributing writer for the New York Times and has written a series of dispatches for The New Yorker, chronicling the experience of a frontline healthcare worker during this pandemic. And in addition to that litany of accomplishments, Dhruv is also my college roommate and my dear, dear friend. Today we're going to talk about his writing in terms of like what it's like to be on the front lines of this pandemic, how the healthcare system has responded, what the emotional impact is. He's going to take us into the hospital and, and pull back that curtain a little bit and, and provide a human perspective on it. And then we're also going to take a step back and talk about what this crisis in terms of the pandemic can teach us about how we as a society can respond to our other existential crisis, which is the climate change crisis. How are we going to learn to educate ourselves, to make better choices in terms of the way that we comport ourselves, the way that we deal with other people? How are we going to learn to address this collective action problem and sacrifice for the greater good? both ours and future generations greater good. So it's a big conversation and one that I am very grateful to have with with such a dear and, and close friend in addition to being such an accomplished physician and truly wonderful writer. All right, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Dhruv Kular. Dr. Kular, welcome to the Who's Saving the Planet podcast. So thrilled to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Lex. So um, I mentioned this in the intro, but I think we should give a little bit of background. This is a, a tiny bit of inside baseball, but you and I actually met a little bit before we uh, agreed to come on this podcast. It was our first day of college when we were assigned to be roommates for one another, uh, except I had a smaller room than you did. And so this is how this friendship began. That's right. A little bit before this podcast meeting about 15 years ago now. Right. Great. And we clearly, we took different paths, uh, mine being to become a bartender and then go to business school. And yours was evidently to go be a doctor. I'm similar. glad to say, yeah, similar, but <laughs> we ended up in the same spot. Um, we did. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one is a very personal one, which is when all of this was, and by this, I mean the coronavirus, COVID that we're living through right now. We experienced it in a way that was often, if we're lucky, through a television screen or through news reports and not in a way where we're on the front lines. But you, being a doctor and working in New York City, New York City absolutely were. And you started writing pieces for The New Yorker, documenting and chronicling your time there. And it, it brought it home for me because I know you. You're one of my best friends in the whole world. We spoke at each other's weddings. And so it personalized it in a way where it wasn't an abstract set of numbers and figures. It was human beings that you know and that you love and you care about living through that. And the first question I have for you is, you're back in New York City now. How are you? How are we? Take us into the hospital. Tell us a little bit about how things look. Yeah, Alex. So um, 
you know, the world is very different now than it was even six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, when we were really in the throes of it in New York City. And part of the goal of the writing that I was doing at that time was really to help people understand what's happening, what, what happens when we let this virus really get out of control. Because for a lot of people, it is kind of invisible. It is something that may be far off that's happening to other people in other states. And, and so what I was hoping to do is to take people into the hospital with me, help them see you know, there are people that are suffering incredibly. They can't breathe. They're being put on ventilators. We're getting to the point where we don't have enough ventilators potentially. Um, and so I really wanted to bring that to people, uh, if only to inspire the types of public health measures that we needed, which was masking, which was social distancing, which was finding ways to, you know, stay far enough apart that we could get this virus under control. Uh, and at least in New York, it seems to be working. So, you know, we have drastically declining rates of coronavirus here, at least of now. Um, we're going to start reopening. We'll see what happens. But, um, but things are much, much different than they were six weeks, eight weeks ago in New York City, at least. How many patients do you see right now? I remember we talked before, you would say that almost all of the patients that you saw had COVID. Is this now, is the situation a little bit different on the ground? Yeah. So, you know, in the month of April, I must have seen hundreds of patients in the hospital and every single one of my patients had COVID. I didn't see one patient who didn't have coronavirus uh, and was struggling to breathe. Um, this past week when I was in the hospital, um, you know, I had one, maybe two patients that had coronavirus. Uh, one of those patients was incidentally found to have, you know, the coronavirus mm -hmm. came in for something else altogether. Um, that's not to say that there aren't still patients with coronavirus, but just to give you a sense of, you know, the exponential kind of reduction in what we're seeing here. And it breaks my heart that, that now other states, Florida, Arizona, Texas, they're going through some of the same things that we were going through um, a couple months ago. Um, and I want them to know that, that with the appropriate measures, uh, things will get better. It's a tough time, um, but, uh, but, but they'll make it through it um, as we did. So uh, you wrote about the exhaustion and how it can feel isolating to be in that situation when you're separated from people by this immediate physical barrier. You have layers and layers of protective gear. What yeah. advice would you have to the doctors and the physicians and the nurses and the emergency workers and everyone who are not at the other side of the curve. They're climbing the hill right now. Yeah. You know, I think the one thing I would say is find ways to stay connected. Um, find ways to stay connected to your friends, to your family, to your patients. This is a cruel disease in the sense that uh, it creates so much separation. It forces separation, right? So a lot of uh, the doctors, the nurses that I've been working with, they're staying apart from their family. At the very least, they're sleeping in different bedrooms, but yeah. uh, many of them stayed at hotels. They didn't see their family for weeks. Uh, and then even Did you the do that? Were you in a hotel? I did. I, was, I wasn't in a hotel, but, but I was not with my partner during, during the uh, height of the pandemic. We were, we were in separate places. And so, you know, a lot of people have had to make that type of sacrifice. Uh, and then for the patients, I mean, you know, it is one of the scariest things in the world to feel like you can't breathe. And, yeah. you know, all these patients are in the hospital, they're struggling to be, breathe. It's incredibly anxiety provoking. Uh, and on top of that, they're not able to, to see their friends and their family. They're not able to hold even their nurses, their doctor's hands. And so it's, it's tough. But, but I think the one thing I would say is find creative ways to stay connected, whether that's phone calls, or FaceTimes, or letters, like 
whatever you need to do to feel like you're still connected to the people that you love, um, this is the time that we need to, to really do that. Yeah. I, the stories that you hear about these, about this disease are harrowing with people not being able to grieve with their loved ones when they know that are dying with the emotional toll on the doctors are taking care of these people. And we've done such an uneven job of combating it, which is so tremendously difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been really tough in the States, I mean, you see these graphs of the U S versus Europe and other parts of the world where we, we didn't even really have a decline. It was just that the pandemic moved around the country to different parts, bobbing and weaving its way around the country. And I think part of that is a lack of a, a strong federal response. You know, coronavirus, like, like climate change, is not something that happens within states. It's, it, it goes across states, it goes across countries. And to have this kind of uh, patchwork way that you're addressing a pandemic, we're, we're seeing the results of it now, unfortunately. So that's a great segue into... Thank you. Well, <laughs> into <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of the times when we have lengthy conversations about very policy and wonky things, I'm coming at it from a let's save the planet issue and you're coming at it from a I'm a doctor and so I do doctor things. That's a little bit of inside baseball for everyone listening. Uh, But we were talking about this and there's some really striking comparisons to coronavirus and to climate change. And can you just tell us from your perspective as a physician where you see perhaps uh, an illusion or an allegory or some, some element where this disease mirrors in some way what we're dealing with with the climate change issue? Yeah, you know, I think I've been considering this over the past couple of weeks. And I think, you know, as long as we don't have a vaccine or a treatment for this virus, the quote unquote remedy for it exists in the community, right? It's a, it's a public health intervention that we're using to try to tamp down the disease. So in that way, it's similar to, to climate change where there's not a silver bullet for it. It's, it's a kind of collective action issue. And so, you know, I see both the coronavirus and climate change, they're kind of invisible threats in the way that you don't, you don't see the threat coming at you. Uh, there's a time delay between when you take action mm-hmm. and when you see the effect of it. And so in the case of coronavirus, it might be days, weeks, months until you see these uptick in, in, in cases. Uh, in climate change, it's, it's longer than that, obviously, but it's not simultaneously when you're taking the action. Uh, and then you really need um, to create a, a sense of collective sacrifice or at least collective uh, redesign of the, the society in some way to address both of these threats. And then, you know, the last thing is that unfortunately, vulnerable populations are the ones that are impacted uh, most by the coronavirus. They're, they're the ones that are being, uh, being impacted most by climate change and will be in the future. And so there's a lot of uh, kind of analogous challenges, uh, I think, between these two incredible threats that we face. So we're not doing that well on either one, to be honest. We're looking at the curve that of the number of new infections going up in this country for coronavirus and the amount of New York carbon that we're putting out into the world. Let's take this one at a time. As a physician, as a doctor, your primary responsibility is to get people to be healthy. How do you break through someone's innate unwillingness to consider a different idea for their benefit. And for this very specific example that we have right now, somebody walks into your hospital, thinks they may be sick or know someone and refuses to wear a mask. How do you address that situation? How do you bring a humanity into what is 
an otherwise a, a mind numbingly logical and rational issue. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, to start with, no one can enter the hospital without a mask. So that, that person wouldn't get into the <laughs> hospital. Um, but, All right, fair enough. but I think, I think, you know, at least within, in the case of seeing patients, you know, people, people, I think generally want to do the right thing. People want to be healthy. People want to keep their friends and family healthy. And so I think a lot of it is reframing uh, the issue in a way that uh, makes sense to people. And so if people are young and healthy and they feel like the coronavirus isn't going to harm them, talking about how it could affect their friends or their family members or their neighbors and people that they care about or love, showing them examples perhaps of, of young people even that uh, do get very sick and, and do end up on on ventilators. So I think part of it is is a reframing issue because I think fundamentally people do want to do what's right for themselves and for the people that they love. I love the idea that human like there's this great quote that humans are intelligent and humanity is quite dumb. And so perhaps on an individual individual basis, you make this argument and you say, here, look at these seven facts. Come to the same logical conclusion that I have. Do you have experience? Like, what, what, what is when that doesn't work? What's Plan B? Yeah, you know, I think um, you know the other thing that I was gonna say is is basically that often there's a hidden reason why someone's not doing what you think is in their quote unquote rational best interest, and so um, probing, trying to understand why it is that they hold these set of beliefs that, that you think um, is not the, the correct way to go about a problem. I found that to be, to be helpful at times. So, you know, to give you an example, there, there may be uh, patients who don't take medications when you prescribe them to them. And uh, these medications are need, needed to control their HIV or to prevent another heart attack. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons why people end up, don't actually end up taking their medicines when they when they're prescribed or at the right time. You know, it could be a cost issue. It could be an issue of not wanting to be reminded that they're sick every day or every six hours. Um, it could be uh, that they heard that there were side effects. They read something on the internet that said this is going to have a really bad side effect. There's all yeah. sorts of reasons that a behavior that initially seems irrational can be rational once you probe uh, kind of underneath the hood, you know, that's not a panacea, you know, it's not as if um, you're going to convince everyone of, of what you think is right using that. But I, but I do think in a number of cases, I found kind of asking a few more questions to get to a, a deeper level, a deeper level of understanding with patients um, has been really effective. And if, if you can do that in an individual or a case by case basis, I, again, I believe that every, we can all be very thoughtful if we are treated as humans, I guess the challenge is that it's very difficult to extrapolate that type of here. Let me express my humanity to you in a big yeah. enough scale to get us as a society to do things that are in our best interest. No, I agree. But, but I'm heartened by, by the movements of the past few decades. And so um, that is the work of advocates of, of policymakers of people that have been, uh, striving to make things happen. And so you look at things like gay rights, for instance. 20 years ago, we were in an extremely different place with gay rights. Um, you know, the thought that uh, gay marriage would be legal in 1995 um, was almost unfathomable. And then you, you see it to be the law of the land today. You think about things like marijuana. 
three strikes laws in the 1990s where people uh, would go to jail sometimes for life for possession of marijuana. Now you now you see that there are dispensaries in some states that are that are being able to be sold. You look at the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, even uh, even five years ago, um, the public's perception of this movement was very, very different. It's one of the fastest uh, kind of growing areas of support in our society. So, you know, I do, uh, I, I take your point, but I also think that we have tangible examples of real important progressive change that's come out of the hard work of a lot of organizers, a lot of advocates, uh, and and we are making progress in a lot of places. So, yes, I agree, as does the oft-quoted Dr. Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah. However... But but remember what Barack Obama said. It doesn't bend on its own. It bends because you put your hand on that arc and you bend it. <laughs> we are, we're trying to bend it, but, 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 but yeah. those issues that you just spoke about, yeah. really terrible um, criminal justice reform, accepting people that are different from you, those are things that while they are extremely immediate in the fact that they are causing harm and perpetuating hate, they are societal issues. We're dealing yeah. now with science, with issues yeah. that don't necessarily conform to that long moral arc because the consequences are fast approaching and we don't have the time to go bend that arc, you know, like climate change and COVID have this in common where it's not going to wait for us to realize or for us to evolve, for us to become more enlightened about a topic. This is a, there's an immediacy to this that is unforgiving and unrelenting. Yeah. And, you know, um, in, in some ways, the climate change issue is even harder than the coronavirus issue. I mean, the coronavirus issue is, is, is such a travesty and a tragedy, but, um, but people see the effects when it comes to their town, when it comes to their state, um, they see what's happening. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, you're the expert on this, on, on how to make those types of effects real um, in the climate change space for people. So they change their behavior or vote for people that, that want to make these types of changes that we need. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm, I'm not the expert. I just play one on your radio, but <laughs> for fair enough. So there's this, uh, this author that I follow, Jason Bordoff, who also is an expert in uh, climate change. And he wrote this article that says, sorry, but the virus shows us why there won't be global action on climate change, drawing this parallel. And this was back at the end of March. And his points that we, t- we touched on were, one, it's a collective action, action issue. So it's hard for humans to make decisions for the greater good in general. And the second was that there's this lack of public education and buy-in. And we started talking about that, about can you do it on an individual level? How do you, how do you broaden it in general? I think there's other issues, other parallels about this. One is the systemic institutions that are going to stand in the way of it. So we can't just change the way that hospitals operate. Your latest piece was about how COVID is exposing a fiscal issue with hospitals. They're going under because they can't generate money in the same way they could. And our government's not doing nearly enough to support hospitals in this time of need. We don't need to get me started on what our government is not doing about climate change. But The other thing that I think these have in common, climate change and COVID, is that it's exposing how unfair the world is, how unjust it is, how the people who are most affected by them are the people, by and large, that have the least means to retaliate against them. Yeah. You know, it's such a good point, and it's so true. 
And you're right, both of these industries have incredibly entrenched interests, very powerful lobbies, um, very large organizations that um, have a vested interest in the status quo. And so that, no doubt, is a huge challenge. You know, in healthcare, we talk a lot about how do we uh, change the incentives for organizations or the healthcare system. And, and by that, I mean, you know, you may have heard moving away from volume-based care or fee-for-service where people are being paid for every single thing they do, so they need to do more and more things to generate revenue, to something called value-based care, where you're, they're not paid for doing more, they're paid for keeping you healthy, or they're rewarded when uh, the patient has a good outcome rather than you did more things to the patient. Interesting. And that's, that's, all, that's all to say, you know, I think... The, the parallel here is we need to find ways to make it in people's financial interest to, uh, in, in my case, um, uh, do the right thing in healthcare, but, but maybe in the climate change space, when it becomes more profitable um, to invest in green energy, to use uh, green energy, when, when those types of things become uh, more profitable than whatever the status quo is, I think even in the absence of quote unquote, winning hearts and minds uh, and, and creating this collective sacrifice, maybe that's when you start to see things shift uh, yeah. to, to a better way. I, aligning incentives in a way that we, we, we live in a capitalist society and be that as it may, not having an incentive structure that rewards altruism is inevitably going to lead to self-interest. And so I completely agree. In my opinion, in climate change, it's a carbon tax, and that's very hotly debated. But until mm -hmm. it starts costing more for things that are destroying the planet, we're not going to use less of them writ large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea as a value-based healthcare in health, or excuse me, a value-based system of payment or rewarding for healthcare. And I think mm -hmm. both of them probably have huge issues when it comes to implementation. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you, everyone come to a consensus on, we agree what these things should cost, or this is where the money that we would charge for a tax would go to benefit, or the losers of this system should fail because we're yeah. okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, getting into the weeds on value-based care, that could be, that could be an hour long conversation that itself. And I don't think would be super interesting to your audience, but, but it's all to say that there's a lot that needs to be worked out, but at a high level. I think realigning the incentives for people in the economy such that doing the right thing by the climate becomes uh, more economically attractive than continuing to use fossil fuels in the way that we do, I think that's a huge part of it. Now, some of it is kind of, quote unquote, winning hearts and minds, helping people understand. You know, I think a lot about uh, the movement around like meatless Mondays or, or eating less meat products that create tremendous amounts of pollution and, right. and contribute to global gas. warming. Sure. Yeah, that's a lot of that is, I think, helping people understand the moral implications of it, the, um, you know, the health implications, honestly, and the climate change implications. So some of that has to do with education. You know, the other thing I'm optimistic on is, you know, the young, younger generations, I think, ha have grown up in a different environment, right? They're exposed to different ideas. Um, I wonder if you look at our uh, the millennial generation, and you look at the generation that's coming up after us, what are their views on, on things like climate change or universal health care as compared to, you know, the baby boomer generation? You know, I venture to guess it's, it's very different, right? It is. It is. The, the polling would justify that. To bring this back to this corollary, right, one anecdote. My wife, as you well know, is a teacher of young people. 
And one of the things that she has done with her class is they read a Greta Thunberg speech together as a class. And these are fourth and fifth, third and fourth graders. And watching these kids react to this incredibly huge idea that the planet is sick and having them put forth their ideas about how to heal it is at the same time inspiring and terrifying. Might that we come to our senses and not force them to confront with a future that is so much less salvageable than it is right now. So that would be one anecdote. But the second, which is, I think, perhaps a little bit more pessimistic, is that if we're looking at COVID right now, all those millennials that need to be the savior are the ones that are outside or probably more Gen Zs. Don't confuse us millennials, please. We're the ones that are trying to have a baby and we're freaked out as shit. (laughs) But all the younger ones are the ones that are outside on the beaches and the bars passing this thing around left and right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, all these issues are, uh, you know, they're not, they're they're important differences. And I think um, young people, obviously, uh, they feel more invincible. They, um, you know, they feel like they want to be out. I can understand. I mean, think about, I mean, we were in college together. If this were our freshman year, that would be tough. Absolutely. That would have been a a really tough period to be away from friends and, and feel like you're not making those new relationships and so on. So I, you know, I understand that. I just think that this, our generation and certainly, you know, Gen Z, they're growing up in a different social milieu, right? So if you grow up trying to understanding that you see that gay marriage is something that is um, all around you and it, and it, and it, and it's the way that it is, or that the planet is sick and we need to um, take steps to address it. Right. Um, I just think that they're growing up in a different era. And I hope that at least from a from a social justice standpoint and an economic justice standpoint, growing up in that type of milieu really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, if the my other favorite quote that I often banter about on this is uh, something along the lines of we don't own the land or we don't own the planet. We're just holding on to it for our children. Something mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. might that we be good custodians of the present for the future generations to come. I'm also hopeful. So one more question to wrap mm-hmm. it up. If that's the big idea of hope, that we who are living through this now will conquer our collective idiocy and the future generation will be better prepared to lead more empathetic and compassionate and thoughtful lives. Where have you seen that in the hospital or in, in in your doctoring that has been a moment of like, of, of hope of just unvarnished, true hope. Yeah. You know, I think often crisis brings out the best in people and without a doubt, um, it has never been more inspiring and satisfying to me to be a doctor than it has been during this, this period. And it's been such a challenging period for so many reasons, but going to the hospital, knowing how important the work that you're doing is to the people around you has been a really powerful experience. The other clinicians in the hospital have come together in a way that I've never experienced before. Um, Doctors of different specialties, of different ranks, nurses, physician assistants, you name it. Um, It's just felt like we're all in it together and all whatever, you know, small rivalries or disagreements that exist in the hospital. I've never experienced the singular purpose uh, in a way that that we did during this crisis. Um, And that gives me hope. Uh, 
that gives me hope that that can be a new reality. And, and I hope that it will be. I'm right there with you. Dr. Kular, Druvi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, hey, will you come back on and give us an update if the world changes a little bit and we could, you could be our resident medical expert? I'd love that, Lex. Thanks so much. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, tell Pia I say hi and send her my love. Will do.